We're in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Sip, sip, sip hooray! Hello and welcome to Sip, Sip, Hooray, the podcast where wine is always fun. I'm Mary Orlin. And I'm Mary Babbitt, and we're so glad you joined us today and so happy that you're thirsty for some wine and spirits knowledge. And I mentioned spirits today because when it comes to adult beverages, spirits seem to be grabbing a lot of attention and let's face it, a lot of market share too. And that's why we're going to take you on the road today to Paso Robles to an area that's just booming with wineries, but also has a growing spirits industry. There are now more than a dozen distilleries on the Paso Robles Distillery Trail which goes from Paso Robles down to San Luis Obispo. We're going to the distillery that started the whole spirits movement in Paso. It's called Refined Distillery and it's at the Villacana Winery on the west side of Paso. Husband and wife team Alex and Monica Villacana started their winery several years ago, but then, lo and behold, the spirits bug bit. So we're going to take you inside to the distillery um, where we meet Alex Villacana, and he's going to tell us why he thinks wine and spirits are a natural pairing. Yeah, that's right. In fact, you could say refined is redefining what a winery can do because they're making spirits from wine grapes. So come Come along as we find out how refined does it. I would like to welcome you to Refined Distillery. Thanks for coming. Hey, Alex, we're so glad to be here. Thanks for having us. (laughs) Thanks. So we are at the Refined Distillery here in Paso Robles. It is um, next to the Villacana Winery, which Alex and Monica Villacana started. And um, the distillery grew out of that. And we are so excited to be here. We're in the distillery, actually. We're looking at some beautiful gleaming copper stills. And Alex, you're going to tell us um, about what you're doing because most people don't think wine and distilleries together. Right, you've got a two-pronged thing happening. Yes, but it actually makes perfect sense. Um, you know, it's a, it is fun, especially with the equipment here, to actually have the interview right here because it is almost like we always jokingly call it Willy Wonka, but the adult version because the equipment is just incredible and it's a. Uh, That's it, what it looks <laughs> like. That's so it. Yes, when you said that, I'm like ding ding ding, 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 I remember. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but it, it, the actually having the distillery and the winery together actually really does make perfect sense. Um, the two are two businesses that really can go side by side. Um, wine is very seasonal. Um, you know, we have obviously busy times during harvest, bottling, some of the stuff out in the vineyards. But there's a lot of actually slower times you know, when you go out and sell wine and, and those type of periods. But um, there's also all this equipment that we purchased uh, for making wine that only gets used three, four months a year um, that sits idle. The tanks and the pumps and a, a lot of the other equipment. And for us to really maximize what we're doing, especially as a small producer, it's really important for us to get the most out of you know the, that equipment that we're purchasing, and the distillery really gives us that ability um, to to maximize everything that we're we're, we're buying and producing. Um, it is also a great way for us, and, and one of the most re- important reasons is as wine a small winery, we, we want to be sustainable, and um, we want to use all the products that are coming off of the vineyard, and this gives us a way to, to really do that. So that brings me to how are you making spirits with wine? 
Yeah, so there's a, a, a kind of a secret winemaker's trick that we do. Um, it's actually really not that complicated, but um, winemakers, especially with the style of wine that uh, consumers are liking these days, those heavy extracted rich red wines, um, winemakers will do a thing called bleeding, French term saunier. And if you're French, and uh, I, I butchered that that word, I apologize. But, <laughs> but it is it's simply the process of bleeding out a certain percentage of juice prior to fermenting. And so like when the grapes come in, they get stemmed, they go into one of our fermentation tanks. Uh, before we add the yeast and the nutrients to get the fermentation going, winemakers will pull a certain percentage of the free-run juice that everybody says is the best out of the tank. Wow. What it does is it's changing the ratio of juice to skins. So kind of think about it as if, if you put one drop of food coloring in a bucket of five-gallon water, it would be a lot different than adding a full cup of food coloring so to that it's, water. It's um, making it more concentrated versus less, more diluted. Exactly. Right? And so it's, it's a way that winemakers make those rich red wines. Yeah, so you get a, a bump in concentration and color um, and flavors because um, the way, and folks who don't know this, um, the way red wine gets the color is from the skin, not the juice, except for Alicante Boucher. Precisely. And uh, and certain certain varieties don't have as much color in the skin as others. Mm -hmm. So um, especially the varieties that we grow here in Paso Robles. Um, so like Morvedro and Grenache are notorious for having very little, little of the anthracite and color compound in the skins of the grapes. And so as a winemaker, if you want to get that color, this is a way to manipulate the grapes without doing anything crazy to get that better, richer color and textural and flavor compounds that come out of the skins. So the question is, what do you do with the juice that you're bleeding off? In the past, plug your ears because it was horrible. We used to dump it down the drain, and it was—it's horrible because it's the the juice is arguably some of the best that you produce. Um, Wouldn't the, you make a rosé from it? You could. Um, the challenge is, is, and and that's why I think what we're doing here in Paso is is unique in a sense because it's it's also dependent on uh, our climate. Um, we're a very warm growing region, and so when we're picking our red wines, um, sometimes we have uh, sugar levels uh, up to twenty to thirty two bricks, which is the way we measure sugar. And uh, which would give us a finished alcohol like 17, 18 percent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Which with red wines, because we have nice acidity, can be balanced. Um, but but with a rosé, it, it would yeah, be yeah, totally yeah. out of balance. You want like 13 percent. 13 percent, nice crisp acidity. Mm -hmm. And so you can start manipulating that rosé uh, to, to make it taste better. Um, but the juice that we're actually getting is coming from really high-end wineries. And so they don't want to make an average rosé. It's not worth their time. And so it made more sense just to get rid of it during the busy season of harvest. But it still drove me crazy because it still takes just as much work to farm it. Um, you know, if I That's pay true. Yeah. It, I mean, and you think all the water and the diesel and the manpower that it goes all to get the grapes. I mean, and that gets back to what you're talking about being sustainable. Precisely. Okay. So you decided to use this juice? Yes. And, you know, part of it was we we tried to figure out things for years. And we ta thought about doing a traditional brandy, which would make sense. Yeah. But it turns out that, one, they're not the traditional varieties. And then two, traditional brandies tend to be picked at a much lower sugar level as well uh, and higher acidity because they age better in barrels. Um, and so the, the fruit we were getting was just not right for it. And you know, I didn't know you could actually do other things than brandy with, with grape-based products. And so we didn't even think about it for a number of years until we actually came across one of our competitors, I guess you would say, that makes actually a grape-based vodka. And that's when the light bulb went off and, uh, and we decided to see if we could actually do it here at the winery. So what 
what's the process like? So the process, um, that first juice that we actually get, so we pull it off, um, the red wine goes its own course and ends up you know, making a red wine, goes into bottle. That juice that gets pulled off, that used to get wasted, uh, we now collect that. Um, and the cool thing with it, because it's going into a spirit, it doesn't matter of what varieties that we blend together. The most important thing is to start with really clean base material. Um, you could probably grow grapes at a cheap enough price to make something like we're doing, but it's just like saying you start with really bad ingredients and make a really good meal. Um, and so for me, it's starting with a really good, uh, well-tended grapes makes a much better yeah. base it's kind material. Of like the, you know, cooking wine. It's, it's bad wine. Use it for cooking, but why would you want to do that? Yeah, and spoil, spoil your spaghetti sauce that you yeah. spend so much time on. Exactly. Um, or whatever you're making. But yeah, and, and for me, it's the exact same thing. If, if I'm starting with really clean fruit, um, the cool thing is being a winemaker now for almost 30 years, um, the, the second part is taking that really nice juice, fermenting it very cleanly. Because you can basically just throw it in a tank, forget about it, not add the nutrients it needs. Um, and you could get off fermentations, off smells, sulfurous compounds, all sorts of kind of crazy stuff that can basically get magnified as you go through the distillation process. But being a winemaker, um, you know, I know when to add the proper nutrients, how to make a clean fermentation. So what I end up with is a very clean, high alcohol style rosé that becomes the base material that then we actually distill to isolate the ethanol, which eventually turns into a vodka and then some of our other flavor flavored spirits as well. So when it becomes vodka, does it taste like wine vodka? Like, can you taste the wine? You know, it's interesting because you technically can, but it's it's not like, it, it's not what you would actually expect. So um, one of the things that we talk about in wine um, a lot of times is the legs in a wine glass. Yeah. Um, and people, it's there's really mixed importance because it doesn't mean it's going to be a good wine. All it means is that there's a lot of glycerol in the wine, and glycerol is a direct byproduct of alcoholic fermentation. Mm -hmm. um, the more sugar, the more glycerol. And so really ripe grapes produce a lot of that glycerol. I never knew this. Yeah. That's the, the thing on this side. That's yeah, the yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, and the reason why it's important in wine is if you have great flavors in your wine, it's going to coat your mouth just like it coats the glass. So and it have feels that. more richer in your mouth and more fuller bodied. Long finish. Yes. Yeah, all those things. The downside with glycerol, though, is if you do your job right as a winemaker and you have off flavors in the wine, those flavors are going to coat your mouth. And so it, it just means you have you have a wine that has the potential to have a really good finish and really good flavors. Um, and so the cool thing with um, distilling is that glycerol comes across in the distillation. And most vodka is actually made out of uh, grains, um, which is, would be like distilling a beer, much lower alcohol, much lower glycerol content. Um, and so they tend to be a little bit sharper on the palate because they're a little bit leaner. They don't have that viscosity and texture. Um, with wine grapes, um, that glycerol comes across. And glycerol is it's a natural sugar um, that people are used to tasting in wine because it's just in the background of every wine you taste. Um, and it also has an aromatic compound. Um, and so you taste our vodka and you get that heavier glycerol note that people are used to tasting in wine. And so people attribute it and say, oh, this has a wine characteristic to it. And so, yes, you can tell it comes from something different. You might not pick grapes, but if we tell you it's grapes, you're going to say, oh, yeah, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've actually tasted your vodka. Oh, good. And, all, and um, I do remember there's um, a very, you know, it's not overwhelming, but it's a very subtle fruit, floral aroma. And um, like you said, it's really clean finish. You don't get that harsh alcohol finish that you usually get from a commercial vodka. No, exactly. And that's because a grain-based alcohol tends to really almost, I always kind of say it flashes off your back palate because it dries really quickly mm -hmm. and it creates that sharp sensation of the alcohol. Um, and it's the glycerol 
alcohol compound is actually so important in, in uh, spirits as well as wine um, that actually some of the grain-based producers of vodkas and gins will actually add glycerol um, to their product, trying to soften it a little bit. We don't have to. It's just a natural product of, uh, of our fantastic Paso Robles grapes. So you guys started this branch of mm-hmm. your winery, so it's its own thing, yep. refined. Yep. And when, how long ago did you start it, and how has it taken off? So we started it in 2011, and so uh, we were the first distillery here in the area to produce commercial spirits. Um, it took us about two years to get through the process because nobody had nested a distillery inside of a winery like this before here in the area, and so it was kind of, everybody was trying to figure out how to make it work, um, and it was really kind of fun. It was, uh, you know, it was an adventure for not only ourselves, but our district director of the Alcoholic Beverage Control was like, let's see how we make this work, and so it was really cool to actually see the government kind of figuring out a, a, a way right. to make this work. And, Forging your own path. I know, exactly, and so in 2011, we got our license and became the, uh, the first licensed distillery here in the region, um, and started using the juice that we were wasting on our own, um, and so that was kind of the, the first step. Um, we bought our still, it was actually a, a German-made Carl still, which is it's kind of one of the, the better um, uh, distill, uh, still manufacturers in the world. Um, they're based in a little town outside of Stuttgart, uh, Germany. Mm-hmm. And that took a good six to nine months to get the still here. Oh, wow. It took much longer to convince my wife this was a good idea. But <laughs> when you, <laughs> I, you know, it took a lot of coercing, a lot of pencil work. And then we actually finally went up to uh, one of the oldest craft distilleries in the United States, St. George Spirits up in Alameda. And I uh, took the tour up there and she came out and she said, oh, this is, this is probably a good idea. Let's, let's go ahead and send the check. And so I didn't send a check, but I wired the funds because I knew by morning she would change her mind. And by then the, the money was gone. <laughs> she said, maybe we should think about it a little bit longer, but that was yeah, too late. Um, and uh, you know, she's, she's super supportive. She's uh, she always takes my crazy ideas and make, figures out a way to make them work. So, <laughs> but, so but people have re- really responded. People have responded. Fantastic. It's, you know, I've been making wine here in Paso Robles since there was, you know, about 20 wineries. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's been fun to see that part of it grow. Um, it's really neat now, though, to see how people are responding to the spirits because now people know Pass Rebels wines. Now we're doing something different. And, you know, we have been making wine for 20-something plus years under our own brand and uh, only produced about 2,000 cases. Well, in the eight years that we've been doing the refine, now we're doing 6,000 cases of spirits. So it's just exploded, And um, which I still love making wine, um, so I'll, I'll never stop doing that. But yeah. the spirits are growing. And spirits can naturally grow a little bit faster because you don't have that aging time that they do uh, for most spirits that we're producing. Um, and so, you know, if we want to produce a vodka or a gin, there's much shorter of a cycle uh, to get it ready for market. And so you can grow it a little bit faster. Um, and so, and then we've been lucky because we were one of the earlier distilleries, we've gotten some good um, distribution organically. And so we're available in about seven or eight other states, which kind of helps that grow as well. Absolutely. So you take your vodka and then you make gin. Yep. And um, from your vodka. Yeah. I know nothing about that. So <laughs> Don't feel bad. about why. Yeah. I, I didn't know anything about spirits really for the most part either. And so it's been a real learning experience for me. So you start with a vodka to get a gin? Yes. So that's kind of the, the interesting thing is I, gin, for all intents and purposes, is one of the first flavored vodkas. Um, it, um, and originally, gin was for medicinal purposes. I always jokingly say it's argu- arguably still used for medicinal purposes. Um, but, um, but it was also a way to cover up bad distillation um, because historically, you know, distilling is a technology as well. And so it wasn't always as clean as it is now. And the 
off alcohols that you're removing um, uh, by doing clean distillation, um, you know, if, if you have a super clean alcohol, you don't need to mask it because it smells beautiful. But if you can't get rid of all the kind of off alcohols around the edges, um, you want to get rid of them. And so juniper was a great way to kind of mask that bad aroma. And so it was a, a way to kind of flavor away the, the kind of the negative side of, of, of distillation. But um, now what we do is we start with a, a squeaky clean vodka. And so we have a blank, uh, basically, canvas to, to basically add those different flavors on. Um, and for me, it's you know, starting with that really clean raw material, that, that great base, um, distilling it, uh, fermenting it very cleanly, distilling it very cleanly. Um, and then what we do is we'll, we'll add those botanicals in. And, and just like my wine, you know, gin is kind of one of those technique things. You'll see different people's palates. And for me, gin was one of the, the, the fun ones because it was like blending 101. You know, when you blend wine varieties, it's so complex because three varieties can have, you know, hundreds of different flavors and, you know, 2% of a single variety can dramatically affect the final blend. With gins, um, you know, we've made our roadmap. I worked with a winemaking friend of mine and basically said, okay, we want something that has some nice kind of soft floral juniper characteristics so you know it's a gin. We wanted a nice earthy base and then we wanted to fill it in with some citrus and floral and kind of botanical so characteristics. there's no rules except for how much juniper has to be in it to be able to be called a gin, but then you can play with the other. Anything. And it's 51% juniper? Exactly. 51% of the botanicals by weight have to be juniper. And there's two different sets of rules on the base alcohol. Um, we go by the European standard, which says it has to be a vodka first before you flavor it. The United States is a little lower threshold, so it doesn't have to be quite as clean in alcohol. Uh, but we go after the after the European kind of model. Yeah. Um, and then what we do is we take those botanicals, and we actually settled on seven botanicals, um, and we do a, basically a, a soaking period, a maceration into the high-proof alcohol, and then a more of a traditional vapor pass, where the alcohol vapor actually passes through the botanicals to pick up the flavors. And so it's you know it's fun because there's not a lot of grape-based uh, uh, gins out there. And the gin, and we talked earlier about that glycerol. Glycerol is not only good about coating your mouth, but it's great about grabbing onto flavor compounds. And so uh, whatever we add in, um, it's going to grab on and give that really in neat intensity. So it kind of amplifies the, the botanicals. Exactly. And so and then it coats your mouth, and it, it, it can give you the ability to really pull the spirit apart because they those, those flavors don't disappear on your palate. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's it's neat, and not only for what we do with it, but then when you take it home, whether it's our vodka or any of our other spirits, if you're adding in, you know, all this, you spend all this time making a really neat cocktail, the worst thing would be to have those flavors disappear on your palate. And so for us, it's like, it's just like starting with good food. You start with a really good, uh, well-produced spirit um, that will basically let those flavors that you spend so much time putting together linger on your palate. So this is kind of an oddball question, but that's me. <laughs> if people came to the winery to yeah. do a wine tasting, yep. could you then also do a spirit tasting? And then is it like a shot? I mean, like a little mini? Because it, it's strong, right? It so is. The thing about wine is, and of course you can always spit, yeah. but you can do a small taste of wine and still be okay. Yeah. I just don't know how much of a spirit you can taste. Like, do you taste gin and then vodka, but now you're mixing liquor? <laughs> and in college, we learned not to do that. There's actually some rules about how much spirits you can taste at any one tasting room. Yep. And it has to be separate from the wine tasting. Yep. So that's the, our dividing room. You can't see it, but we have a wall between our wine tasting room and our distillery. Okay. Um, it's actually six one-quarter ounce, unless they've changed the rules. But we pour it. Our, the rule we know is six one-quarter ounce tastings. To be honest, we usually it's about half of that. Mm -hmm. Because with spirits, it doesn't. 
doesn't take a lot. It, it basically, you just take a little sip. And so no, it's not a shot. It's basically just a little sip that you put on your palate. You don't aspirate it like you would a wine where you kind of breathe air yeah, through it because right. that, it, it just is really intense. And so it's, <laughs> it's actually weird. Tasting spirits is a little bit different. When you're actually um, smelling spirits, you actually open your mouth um, because what it does is it basically allows the alcohol to kind of uh, evaporate off. And so you get a little bit more of those aromatic compounds. Um, so it's kind of, it's a little kind of weird when you're actually tra- trying spirits. And then when you taste it, you don't aspirate it, but it'll coat your mouth and you just need to taste a little bit. And it's funny because we do, uh, you know, the first couple uh, times we had the tasting room open for spirits as, as well as wine, you could tell people were like bracing themselves going, okay, I'm going to take a shot right here. And, you know, the neat thing is just if you think about really cheap wine, it's really bad and you don't really, it's not about like sipping and swirling. It's about just drinking really bad wine because you don't want to drink it. It's, it's the same thing with spirits. Um, you know, there's a reason why people take shots of certain spirits and liquors out there because they're really bad. Um, with really good spirits, I, it's really easy to sip our spirits because they're so soft and easy. Yeah, I was going to say, you could just um, drink it neat. You don't really, to me, it's almost like, I don't, they're so beautiful. I don't want to put them into a cocktail and really hide the flavor. Uh, well, well, thank you. No, it's because we do put a lot of work into it. So I, I appreciate that. But I also do appreciate, like, it would be like me raising, you know, vegetables and then having a chef take care of, you know, take, take care of the rest. And so sure. I do like to see what mixologists do with it as long as they don't hide it. I'd like to actually have that background flavors that I've put into it. And so, and that's like, you know, a good chef is just like a really good mixologist. It's somebody who can create a, co- a cocktail uh, that's balanced, that doesn't just mask it with heavy sugar and, and sweetness and other things, but, you know, highlights, you know, one of the attributes of the spirit. And so it's, it's, it's definitely an art. Well, I think one of your vodkas for warm weather, especially, is the cucumber oh. vodka. And tell, and I know the story behind it, but tell, yeah. tell Mary how, um, you know, you work with this massive amount of cucumbers, <laughs> and it's only seasonal. It is seasonal, and we are in the season. So we actually are getting our, we're actually a little later this year because we had the really cool season. So everything we do is, it's seasonal. We don't buy pre-distilled cucumbers and add it to. We don't buy, you know, lemon essence. We basically work with the farmers uh, and get things when they're ripe. And uh, so we work with um, uh, Bautista Farms down in Arroyo Grande, which is just south of us. Um, we meet him. Actually, now he delivers because we get enough. But the, originally, we actually went to the farmer's market. <laughs> we moved, moving up in the world. Um, but we, um, and, and it was fun because when we originally started, it was kind of a way for him to uh, use some of his ugly cucumbers, per se. Um, you know, it's funny. People, they don't like cucumbers that look like yews. They like them long and straight. And they don't taste any different. But, We're so but, weird. But, I know. Yeah. Ugly, ugly yeah, vegetables. Yeah. 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 And, uh-huh. and so he would throw them away. I'm like, uh, and so I'm like, I'll buy everything you got. And he's like, are you kidding? That, I mean, he made a lot more because he was able to utilize his crop. And for us, I didn't care because we were going to juice them. And um, and so we get the uh, cucumbers when they're ripe. He picks them. Uh, so our first uh, batch is going to be in about a week. And uh, and so he'll basically deliver them the day he picks them. Um, and when we first started, we had one Breville Bed Bath & Beyond purchase juicer. And we juice those cucumbers one at a time. And uh, so we're, we're up to four juicers now. So we're really styling. Uh, and um, so he picks them. We juice them that same day. And then we actually add fresh cucumber juice 
to the vodka um, and distill it one last time. And that all happens in that same day. And so it really, what it does is it captures that essence of fresh picked cucumbers. And, uh, and so it's, um, it, it's really incredible. Uh, I would say nationally in all of our, the states that we distribute, it is our best seller. And it's because other people are doing cucumber uh, vodkas. Nobody else is doing a grape-based uh, vodka flavored with cucumber, which that, that uh, grape base grabs onto the flavor. But it's also because we are using real cucumbers and a lot of them. We, I think we calculated it's like four pounds of cucumbers per bottle. It's, it's a, a crazy amount. Wow, wow, wow. And so it, it is. And it's, um, so a we always... A lot of juicing. A lot of juicing. So I think that's when my son left town. He's moved down to LA. But anyway, that's a whole separate story. But, um, but it does. It's, it's, it's great for summer cocktails. Um, you know, we like it because it, it's really nice on its own, but you can actually go a lot of different directions with it. You know, we've had some uh, mixologists make savory cocktails with, you know, a little dill simple syrup and, and, and sea salt. So you get that kind of brininess. And, and then, you know, you get the cool kind of watermelon, lemon juice cocktails with it that are super refreshing on a hot day. Wow, this is all so fascinating. <laughs> so you are, is it like having a different muscle then? Being a winemaker and a distiller? Like, are, are you, I don't know, I, I, I think I think like the left and right brain? <laughs> uh, it, it is totally different. I mean, it's, it's you know, there, there's a lot of similarities because a lot of the background knowledge that I have from winemaking really helps. Um, but then, you know, even to the end, like wine, you try to keep away from all oxygen. Spirits love oxygen. And so it's even just little things like that make a big difference. And and so, you know, where, you know, with, with you know, wine versus spirits, you know, there's there's things that I do similarly that with spirits, you know, I wouldn't have known about unless I was a winemaker first, like filtering um, is, is probably a perfect example. You know, if you believed all the advertising that you saw on TV, it's the number of times something's distilled and then what it's filtered through makes a spirit good. And um, because I was a winemaker and I, I thought I was going to filter my spirits through charcoal as well, because that's what everybody does to make good spirits, right? And, and then thankfully my winemaker's hat went on and I was like, well, why am I filtering this? <laughs> and it's, you know, it's, you know, it's stable. It's at 40% alcohol. Nothing's going to grow in it. Um, it's, it, uh, you know, it has beautiful aromas, so I don't want to get rid of anything because there's no bad aromas. You don't want to strip any of that out. Exactly. And so, um, and so I basically made that decision not to do that. And, and so even though, you know, I, with the wine and spirits, I go different directions because there's different techniques I have to use for both. That, that background knowledge as a, a winemaker, and I'm sure if a brewer was here, he would say the same thing. It's mm -hmm. that background foundation in fermentation sciences on how to make something would, you know, it all comes together in the end, but it definitely, I feel like I wear two different hats uh, on any given day. So people often talk about when we ask, do you have a favorite wine at your winery? <laughs> and they're all, they're all like my children, so I can't pick yeah. a favorite. So if the winery is one of your children and the distillery is the other, is one child meatier than the other? Oh, wine for sure. Oh, really? oh yeah. No, wine is much more needy. And you know, part of it is once you actually, so once you get the, the, the spirit distilled um, and you, you get your formula and your technique down, it's a lot easier to replicate. Um, with wine, Mother Nature has a real cruel way of basically teaching you every time you think you've figured something out that she's going to show you that the weather is different, the grapes are different, the fermentation is different. And, and so you, you can make a plan at the beginning of the harvest or beginning of the, of the vintage, and there's no way it's going to work out exactly like you think because it, every year is different. And I've been doing it now 30 years. I wish I could say there was one that was the same every year. But I think, to be honest, as a, a winemaker, I think I'm more fulfilled because I'm a very creative person. Um, spirits, I get really creative and amped up when I'm first creating a spirit. Once I get into the production cycle of it, it's it's not as exciting, but it's it's cool to see people's response to it. And I think that's what I really kind of I, I love to see. Sure. So what are some of the other spirits you're making? 
So, um, so we had the, the vodka and gin were our very first two. Um, then we actually added the cucumber. We added a limoncello, uh, which the limoncello is fantastic. It's a hand-zested 13,000 pounds of lemons. I know, it's insane. He's asking for punishment. I know. It's like, I, I, I always say, it's like, I, I, maybe I'm just not smart because I tried to do everything the hard way. And it's like, there's got to be an easier way to do this because we use potato peelers and we zest 13,000 pounds of lemons. Um, uh, it took 20 of us about three and a half days this year. And, and because the lemons, um, we get them directly from the farmer and we can't have wax on them because we don't want that wax in the, uh, in the finished spirit, uh, we have to do it really fast because the lemons will start to spoil. And, uh, and so we work with potato peelers and we've tried those other machines, but they get too much of the white pith underneath. Mm -hmm. And so the, the potato peeler is the best because you can just pull the zest off almost translucent. Yes. So you're just getting the outside. And, uh, and then you soak it in the high-proof alcohol for three to four months. And then the hard part actually starts, if you can believe it. That's where you have to be patient and actually slowly add the simple syrup to it over a long period of time. Oh, because if you add it too fast, if you think about adding cold water to like hot grease, okay. you get that oil that separates out and you get that cloudiness. Um, the same thing is going to happen with the spirits because when you add water to spirits, there's a, there's a thermodynamic reaction and it warms up. And so if you add too much too fast, it heats up and the oil comes out of solution. And so you have to add it really slowly so that oil will stay locked into the alcohol. Well, that's one mistake I made with my homemade lemon jello. <laughs> Did you get a little cloudiness in it? Just a little. Not yeah. too bad, but um, I didn't add it slowly, the simple syrup. So. Yeah. yeah, so that's the kind that's of... That's why <laughs> You know, it's, it, after you've waited that long for it to soak, it's like you want to get it, get it ready to drink. I have it? another batch macerating, so I haven't added the simple syrup to that okay. yet, but I'm also going to let mine go longer. I was doing like a month. It, it makes the, the time makes a big difference, but it also depends on your initial alcohol too. Because if you have a, a lower proof, mm -hmm. it takes longer to solubilize out the. the yeah, and that's and that's a challenge. And where we the, the alcohol coming off our still is about ninety six percent pure ethanol, and so it's uh, it will pull out all those beautiful flavors. Okay. Yeah. Well, good to know. So, um, so and then uh, let's see. So we got the vodka, the gin, the cucumber, the limoncello. Uh, we do a couple aged spirits. Um, so we um, we do a, a barrel finished vodka because we have grape base. We thought we would make something that tastes more like a whiskey than a, than a, a vodka. And, um, and it, it's amazing. We've actually had people try it and not tell them that it's actually a grape based product. Yeah. And they walk out the door asking, hey, can I get a bottle of that whiskey? Because they don't know that they're not, mm. they're drinking a grape based product, which is pretty cool. And are you using your wine barrels? No. So we actually, we use the grape based vodka, but then we use actually traditional whiskey barrels okay. and used rye barrels. And so it, it creates a spirit that is, you know, all spirits are gluten free. I that's a, a, know. everybody knows, but, but it's some people don't like to risk it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but this is—it's actually a way to have a quote-unquote whiskey um, that is totally gluten-free because it starts from a gluten-free material, um, and so we jokingly call it a California whiskey that, because <laughs> we do things different here. Um, and then uh, we do actually do a couple of traditional whiskeys. We work with um, a couple of our local breweries uh, to make the initial wash for us. Actually, just this morning I picked up uh, about eighteen hundred gallons of uh, of rye wash, which is whiskey for all intents and purposes is a non-hopped beer um, made it in a little different style but it's uh, it is for all intents and purposes is a beer and so we work with the local breweries because for me I've never that's one alcohol I've never made before and to make a really good whiskey you have to start with a really good beer and uh, we're fortunate in our area that we have some incredible brewers arguably some of the best in the yes. world and uh, and so we work with um, uh, can I say the name of the, the sure. brewery? so we work with uh, Firestone Brewery um, who I picked up yeah. Yeah, and then we work with Slow Brew Barrel House Brewing and Doc Cellars, and, oh, and so we have a really great cross section of the, the brewers. And so we picked up this morning um, about eighteen hundred gallons from Firestone Walker, and they made us a rye.
rye, wheat, barley uh, wash that we actually will uh, ferment, distill, age, uh, and then hand bottle here on, here on site. And so the unique thing is working with a brewer, is, it's going to be different than your traditional whiskey because the brewer doesn't care that it's going to become a whiskey. He's like, I'm making a good beer. And, and so that, it's a different mentality than if you're going, I'm going to take this grain and turn it into something that I'm going to distill into a whiskey. Um, and so what you get is something that has a lot more flavor initially, a lot more balanced initially. Um, it's, and then when you take that and distill it, that more harmonious flavors from the beginning is going to show up at the end of the pro process. And, and it also leaves a spirit that we then, again, don't have to filter because um, they've done some of their techniques that get rid of some of the issues that might come up later down the line. Jeez. And then how long before we can drink it? Oh, that's, see, that's a patience thing again. So those, so uh, the only downside with uh, the aged spirits is it takes much longer to age them. There's one little way to kind of get around that, um, which is uh, using smaller barrels. Um, the challenge with small, smaller barrels, we use 15-gallon barrels. Um, a traditional whiskey barrel is 53 gallons. Uh, a 53-gallon barrel and a 15-gallon barrel cost exactly the same. Oh, wow. And so my upfront con bar cost on barrels is a little over three times as high, um, almost four times as high. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. But the good thing is, is you can get that same aging style in three to four years that it would take 12 to 15 years in a 53-gallon. So you make up those costs there. And, um, and so it's, uh, it is interesting because they're, I think uh, we're putting a little pressure on some of the bigger distillers because there's actually they're trying to change the law saying that whiskey has to be aged in large barrels, which would slow all of us little guys down. Um, but uh, anyway, it's, it's interesting. For me, though, it's also, if you think about the surface uh, area of a barrel, a lot of the flavor compounds that traditional whiskeys and brandies have are the surface of the barrel. Yes. And so because you're actually, um, there, there's more of that surface in contact with a smaller amount of spirits, you don't have to add fake caramel coloring. You don't have to basically do something to get those rich, col rich colors and flavors. And so I think we get a little bit better intensity and flavors out of a smaller barrel anyway. It's just a little bit more expensive up front. And you're not taking any shortcuts. No shortcuts. Uh, that, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, we do it the hard way, which is, uh, is kind of our philosophy here. That's cool. So um, what is your spirit of the moment that you're going to drink when you go home this weekend, and um, what cocktail would you use? Oh, boy. So that's a, that's a big question. Um, so I, I tend to like spiritus-based cocktails. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, one of my favorites is the Boulevardier. Um, and so I, I would either do it with a rye or a barrel-finished vodka. Um, and then I love Carpano is, uh, is one of my favorite vermouths. Um, and then, you know, I tend to use like Aperol as a bitter. Um, and so something like that is just a, is a really kind of fun cocktail that just you can sip on. Don't drink it that fast. We haven't hit that heat of summer yet. If, if it was really hot, then I would say it was probably one of, our, one of my cucumber cocktails. But, uh, but anyway, I'm, we're still kind of kind of cool in the mornings and in the afternoons, yeah, so yeah. still still kind of works for that. But uh, but that is actually fun. The experimentation to see what you can do with the spirits, mm -hmm. whether it's traditional or kind of just kind of extemporaneous, is, yeah. is is a fun process. And that's probably something that you and your customers share back and forth. I'm guessing where that you give them ideas and they give you ideas for cocktails. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And that's actually been a fun exchange because you know people come up with some crazy creative stuff. And uh, <laughs> and then I was really lucky about two years ago. Um, I had uh, as my cell 
cellar assistant during harvest. He was a mixologist from San Francisco, and he worked at some of the, the top restaurants up there. And uh, and he just wanted to see the process, so he wanted to come down for harvest, see how wine was made, see how the spirits were made. And it was fun. After you know we'd be finished processing for the day, he would sit around and play with cocktails that you know took a traditional you know you know white linen type cocktail and and did a twist with our with our spirits using the cucumber or something like that. And and so it was it was fun to have somebody a professional like that who knows how to balance things and the tricks of the trade for for spirits. Like I didn't know that a lot of those mixologists add a little pinch of salt to some of those cocktails because it pops the flavor. And so which is really unique. And and so it's like just little things like that. And, and so it was pretty unique having a mixologist here as my assistant for a little while. So I was a little spoiled. So made for happy afternoons after harvest. Nice way Yeah so um, for folks who want to come out and visit you, um, you are part of the Paso Robles Spirits Trail, or is it the... Um... So we, we have an identity crisis yeah. a little bit. So okay. um, we actually have the Paso Robles Distillers Trail, which is just our, our Paso Robles region's trail. Of, of I think there's 12 distillers on our trail. Um, what we did, though, as a, a, as a group, uh, when we first got started, we wanted to kind of throw a, a broad net so we could actually encompass the whole Central Coast. So um, I think we're now the distillers of the Central Coast. Um, and uh, we're, we currently have uh, two or three down in San Luis Obispo, as well, so we're going to have a slow distillers trail, um, and then we're hoping to get some of the guys that are down in the Santa Barbara County as well as Monterey County to join the group as well. And so we have kind of that greater Central Coast umbrella, yeah. uh, but then just here in Pass Robles, where the Pass Robles Distillers Trail, and it's fun because you know individually I mean, it was nice being the only distillery for a while because everybody would refer people here. But you know, to be honest, it's just like the wines. If I was the only winery in the region, this region would never have you know grown. And and so uh, you know, having these other distillers out there has made it great because we're able to do like weekend events, uh, events, you know, uh, you know, out of the area as well as, as a region. And, and so it's, um, you know, kind of that group strength uh, of having uh, other guys around. And, and also we are, you know, we're a little bit competitive too. And so I think it pushes the quality level as well in our, in our creativity. So what would you want uh, a tried and true wine lover to know who, like me, really hasn't had a lot of experience with spirits? Yeah. What, what would your message to that be? Um, I would say it was, it's just, you know, look um, outside of what you see that's branded, at a, you know, on a supermarket shelf. Um, you know, the, the craft spirits movement is very much what the beer went through, uh, that wine went through years ago. Um, and, you know, spirits um, historically have been mass produced. Um, and so as a wine drinker, especially, uh, you know, if you really like fine wines, um, I think you would really understand that, you know, something that is handcrafted and unique and that there's actually a, an individual behind, not, you know, and uh, basically a, a corporate kind of formula, you're going to actually try something that's different. It might not be to your taste, but if you try mine and then try somebody else's, you might find something that is so much more unique than something that you're used to uh, just buying off the shelf. Because it is, I mean, the raw material makes a huge difference. Um, you know, my palate, especially like on a gin or the cucumber vodka or, you know, when I decide to harvest my barrels for the whiskeys, it makes a big difference in the flavor profile. And so having all these distilleries now gives you a huge amount of choices. Um, you know, it's kind of like when Mandavi said, I'm, I'm basically going to make a fine wine instead of, you know, these huge redwood fermented California wines that we used to produce. And or Sam Adams producing a very unique beer. And, and so it's, you know, you're, you might not love all of them, but you, you'd be surprised at the quality and difference you're going to get when you actually try a spirit. And as a wine lover for us is great because I really look at our spirits as an extension of the wine experience. Um, because when, when I go out on the road and sell spirits in other areas, I'm 
telling people that these are California premium wine grapes. And then when they taste them, they actually can taste that quality and craft that goes behind. Love it. Yes. Gosh, Alex, thank you so much. What a fascinating conversation. Absolutely. And um, it's really great. Um, if you're in Paso Robles, Sip Sip Array listeners, you need to come here. You can taste wine, and then you can come into the distillery and taste a few spirits. You can hang out here, play some bocce ball. Cornhole, we got that too. Right. <laughs> but thanks, it's so wonderful being here again. And um, yeah, I think we've learned a lot about spirits from wine. Absolutely, you've made me thirsty. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> no, thank you guys for your interest. We, I really appreciate it. And uh, we, we would welcome anybody to come out here and, and check out what we're doing. All right, thanks, Alex. Cheers. Cheers and sip, sip, hooray. Cheers. Well, that was super fun hanging out at Refined and talking with Alex. Such a cool operation down there. So get in the spirit and go to our website, sipsipparaypodcast.com. We'll have a link to the Refined Distillery and photos and more information. And while you're there, you can listen to some of our other podcasts. Yeah, we want to invite you to follow us on social media. We're Sip Sip Hooray Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Also, send us your wine-related questions. If you've got a question, tell us. Go to our website, and you can find the prompts there that let you know how to get in touch with us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it with your friends and family. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss another episode when it drops. All righty, that's going to do it for us today. We thank you for listening, and we encourage you to come on back for more Sip Sip Hooray. Cheers. Ace is the place with the helpful hardware, folks. There's no better feeling than grilling out. And there's no better place than Ace to get the best grill for you and your family. We have the hottest grills from top brands like Big Green Egg, Traeger, and Weber. And since our stores are locally owned and we're committed to helping our neighbors, we'll also assemble and deliver your grill for free. Around the block, what you need in stock with people who know their grills. Offer valid for Ace Rewards members through September 7th on grills and accessories $3.99 and up. See participating stores for scheduling or exclusions.